If you haven't been with us, uh, we've been talking, uh, going through the book of John, the second half here of the book of John, talking about its time. That, uh, again, this, this moment of Christ's death and resurrection is this moment in time that we're moving towards. And, and as we look at this last week of ministry, again, all of these things are starting to culminate uh, into this point. And so, so far, Jesus has been doing a lot with his disciples. And this is, this is kind of the last piece that he has before he starts to move to the garden uh, and then he starts to move towards the trial and the death and resurrection. So next week, we're going to see a little bit of a transition in, a, in this part of the story. But again, it's still this moment of what is God committing to uh, in, in this earth and into us? Now, back in uh, 1961, there was a, a program that got started on ABC. Some of you might remember this. It was called The Wide World of Sports. Uh, it, it, it would show not necessarily always something like football or baseball, something popular, but you'd get tennis, you'd get auto racing. Uh, for those that love their Olympic winter sports, uh, you know, it might have the, the ice skating. Uh, you might get your summer Olympic sports like track and field or gymnastics, the things that you didn't always get to see on television. You know, but the true spectacle of the wide world of sports, when it had the, the real oddities that it had on there, uh, this is where curling was on before curling has become really popular in recent years. Cliff diving, barrel jumping, uh, logging sports, demolition derby, uh, and even the popular wrist wrestling competitions uh, that once uh, were, were on this television program. Well, one of the things that the wide world of sports became very famous for was its, its tagline, the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. And at that moment would come the ski jumper down the hill and go flying off into the crowd. And people would turn in just to literally watch this moment, to, to watch this man in his pain. Well, turns out that guy actually has a real name. He actually had a family. Um, it was the 1970 Olympics. The ski jump competition had been postponed for 20 minutes because of real high winds, and they said it was pretty icy, so they tried to wait. And... Um, Visibility was poor, and they finally said, well, we got to get this thing moving. So uh, Vinko Bogatai was competing for the then Yugoslavia, and as he was going down the hill, he said he could just start to feel it go. And he said he actually tried to slow himself down, that he could feel it was really icy, and he was starting to, to skid out, and then he just lost control. And he said he actually blacked out at that point, flew off into the crowd, got a concussion, and broke his ankle. Well, that was the end of Venko in the Olympics then. And so next year, he heals. He, he comes back to try to compete in, in ski jumping. And he just said he was never the same. And so poor Venko uh, finished his uh, ski jumping career with a career best of 57th place. Uh, so he was really not setting the world on fire by any sort of the means. But this is what carried on in his name. Well, one of the things that was really interesting was 20 years after this wide world of sports got started, ABC said, let's, let's do a 20-year celebration. And they said, what if we can go find that guy? And so somebody tracked him down, and they brought him into New York. And, and this place was filled with some of the world's greatest athletes at the time. And he said, Vinko was announced into the room, and they said he received the loudest ovation 
more than any other athlete. And he was beside himself. He said, I never realized that how popular I, I got. He said, actually, he said, the moment I realized how famous I became was when Muhammad Ali came up to me and said, can I have your autograph? <laughs> he was floored by this idea. And he said, this had truly become one of the greatest moments of his life. And, you know, as, as we walk this world, there are a lot of difficulties and trials and pain that we go through. There are things that cause grief and sorrow, you know, but as believers, we know that this world is temporary. We understand that this is just but a moment in time, and there will come a day where all of the pain and anguish that we experience will be turned into a blessed, eternal joy. And so just like Vinko had for 20 years walked around with that shame and, and, and grief of what happened, and now the fact that his face was on television, he said all of that was different the moment that he walked in to that room and heard the applause and had a chance to speak with all of these individuals. So again, as we, we've been talking, Jesus knows that his disciples are, are worried. He knows that they are fearful about what's to happen, and he's been trying to provide comfort and encouraging to them to, to remain uh, true, to abide in him, to stay committed to the root uh, that is Christ. And then he gives this brutally honest source where he says, you know, and in this moment you will also be persecuted. People are going to be out for your lives. But again, this plan of Christ is better than anything else. And this is what he's trying to have his disciples understand. And so he's going to continue, again, this teaching, where, again, next week we're going to move into the garden, into the trial and the execution of Jesus. And so this is kind of his final, last piece of teaching that he's going to give to his disciples before he, he moves a little bit further down, down this plan. So if you have your Bibles, you guys can open up to John chapter 16. Starting in verse uh, 16 here. It says, In a little while you will see me no more. And then after a little while you will see me. Some of his disciples said to one another, what, is, what does he mean by saying, In a little while you will see me no more. And then after a little while you'll see me. And because I'm going to the Father? They kept asking, What does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. Now, the disciples have always had a relationship here with Christ where they were to, to follow him and to trust him, but that didn't mean they always actually understood what Jesus was trying to communicate. A lot of times they were left kind of bewildered and in this, this place of you know, confusion. So back in chapter 4, Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman and he's talking to her about living water. And then when he, he comes back and, and the disciples are like, do you need something to eat? And he's like, I've already had something to eat. And they're like, who fed Jesus? I, I, I don't get it. We went to go get food and now he doesn't want to eat. And then in, in chapter 6, he's talking about the bread of life. And then he's talking about how his body is the bread that needs to be eaten. And the blood of his is what needs to be drank. And the disciples are just like flat out, Jesus, we definitely don't understand what you're saying on this one. We're, we're really kind of lost. Uh, and we, we also see the same idea in chapter 13. Again, when Peter goes to wash Jesus' feet. And he's like, no, Jesus, you have, Jesus, Jesus says, I'm going to wash your feet. 
And Peter's like, well, wash my whole body. And he's like, yeah, I don't need to wash your whole body. I only need to wash your feet at this point. And then he's, he's confused about that. And then Jesus predicts his death. And he's like, you can't follow me. And Peter's like, I'm going to follow you everywhere. And he's like, no, you ain't. Right. So there's a lot of confusion happening with the disciples and they're really struggling how to get there. And in chapter 14, he says, I'm going to my father's house. And they're like, well, how do we get there? And he's like, you know the way through the father. And they're like, who's the father? And Jesus is kind of like smacking his head like, oh, my goodness, these guys just don't seem to get it. And so they're struggling to really understand this concept of his death. They're really struggling to understand exactly who Jesus was. Because remember, in their mind, Jesus was coming to free them from the Roman oppression and was going to make Jerusalem, you know, the, the pinnacle of the world again. That's what they were expecting. And so when Jesus is talking in this fashion, they're really kind of lost. And no one's bold enough to say to Jesus at this point, hey, we don't get it. Can you explain it? So Jesus kind of knows what's going on. So let's continue here. Chapter uh, verse 19. So Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this. So he said to them, are you asking one another what I meant when I said in a little while you will see me no more and then after a little while you will see me? I tell you the truth. You will weep and mourn when the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain. Because her time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. In that day, I will tell you no longer, ask me anything. I tell you the truth. My father will give you whatever you ask in my name. And until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. So again, he, he, he says, let me explain this again. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go. You're going to be worried. You won't see me, but then I'll come back and, and you'll be excited again. All right. So that's kind of what's going to happen. And so he's referring here to his death and resurrection, which is which is shortly about to happen. And he's trying to prepare them again for this moment of what life is going to feel like when they have put all of their hopes and dreams into Jesus. And then all of a sudden their spiritual mentor has been taken away from them. And he says, he says, very truly, he says, listen up. That's what that means. He says, I need you to pay real close attention to what is about to happen. He says, you will weep and you will mourn. And so when it talks about weeping, it's this real intense grief. And if you know anything about, about Middle Eastern culture, even today, you know, it goes all the way back to biblical times that when there was sorrow, like, like weeping wasn't just like, I'm sad, but there were like wailing to the point where it could be heard. And there was devastation over what tragedy has happened in their lives. He said, that's what you're going to be experiencing and you're going to mourn. And an idea of mourning is the outward expression of inner grief. So in the Bible, when people would rip their clothes and they would put on sackcloth and they'd put dirt on their head, that was meant to be a symbolic nature of this uncomfortable life is the way that I feel right now, right? I don't know if you've ever worn a burlap sack. It's not the most comfortable thing. But he's trying to get them to understand this is how bad this is going to feel in that moment when I'm not with you anymore. Okay, And he says, when all of this happens and you are feeling at your lowest, do you know what the world is going to do? 
it's going to rejoice. You are not going to get any sympathies from anyone else at this point. All right, so, so just understand that when you're sorrow and you're looking for comfort, the world ain't coming to help you out. It, it, it reminds me of what happened on 9-11. Uh, you know, for us that remember that tragic day when the, the planes flew into the towers, and as a nation, we stood there in, in disbelief and the heartache at the loss of so many lives. And then I remember watching on the television as they pan to images in the Middle East as people cheered and burned the American flag. And I just thought in my heart, I said, how callous people could be at such evil that happened. And Jesus is saying, that's, that's what it's going to feel like, guys. And so as they're struggling with this, he says, let me try to help you out. Let me explain what this is going to be like. This is going to be like childbirth, right? You know, when, 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 when a couple and the, 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 the wife gets pregnant and there is that moment of excitement when you find out and you go, yes, we're going to have a child. And that is, it's so wonderful. And then for the next nine months, right, the, the, the amazing wife gets to carry that child. And then she starts to go through the pain and the sickness, right? The uncomfortable nature. And as a husband, you're doing everything you possibly can think of to try to make herself, make her feel good. And you realize there's just nothing that's probably going to help at this point, right? And then it's time where you need to go to the hospital. And you're like, yes, this is the moment. I'm so excited. And your wife is like looking at you and like, right? Because now we all know what's about to happen. She's going to go through the labor. She, and I don't know what each of your experiences were like. Some takes longer than others. Uh, I know some can go longer than a full day. Um, you know, but that intense pain that a woman has to experience, uh, you know, and it's just, it's, 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 heart-wrenching at times to think like, God, boy, we really messed up that you said this was our consequence for, for sinning in the garden. And I know women, I've, I'm not doing justice to any of this, right? So I understand that, right? I, I have no idea exactly what you're experiencing uh, in that sense. But, but he, says, he says that anguish that you're going to go through changes the moment that child comes and you hear the sound of the cry. And you see the sight of that child's beautiful face. That everything you just went through in that moment is gone as you embrace your child. He says, that's what it's going to be like, guys. It's going to be so hard for you. And, and, and the moment you see me again, everything that you thought and felt is going to be overwhelmed by the joy and happiness when I return, and he says that joy is never going to go away. Okay, so he, again, he, he's trying to comfort, he's trying to do his best, and so he now continues to elaborate here. So let's go over to chapter 25, or verse 25. He says, though I've been speaking figuratively, a time is coming where I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my father. And that day you will ask in my name, and I'm not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I've come from God. I came from the Father and entered the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going back to my Father. And then Jesus' disciples said, Now you are speaking clearly 
and we without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have to ask, we even have to ask anyone questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. So Jesus oftentimes, again, speaks in this idea of parables. And again, it would feel somewhat kind of cryptic to us. But whenever Jesus would have these conversations, a lot of times he would end with, if he has ears to hear, let him hear. And what he was saying was, if you really want to understand this, then you will seek and pursue after me in this. And so Jesus is letting them know that, hey guys, there's a time that's coming when all of this is going to make sense to you. And that's going to be in the coming of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, back in, in, in verse 16, when he says, you will see me no more, and then in a little you will see me, that word see is actually two different words two different words. The first one is in terms of an observation, right? You're not going to see me physically anymore. And then when I come back, he says, you're going to see me in a more kind of a mental, spiritual type of seeing. And you're going to understand things in a whole different way when the Spirit comes upon you and it explains everything to you. Again, all of this doesn't make sense, disciples, and I'm doing my best to try to help you understand something you're struggling to understand. But there will come a day, there will come a day, so hang in there, when you'll go, I get it. I understand everything that Jesus was trying to communicate to me. Okay? And we have limited and finite knowledge, and we need the power of the Spirit. And we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, what does the Spirit do? It says, No eye has seen, and no ear has heard what no human mind has conceived. The things God has prepared for those who love Him, these are the things that God has revealed to us by the Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God, for who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them. In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught by human words, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolish and cannot understand because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So again, he's saying, like, there's a lot of stuff you don't get. There's a lot of stuff you don't understand. But when the Spirit comes, he will enlighten you to everything that I've been talking about, and it will all make sense. So I know you're worried. I know you're fearful about what's to happen. I know what you're going to experience. But hang in there, guys. Hang in there. It's going to be okay. And isn't it interesting that he says in verse 7 of chapter 16, he says, it's better that I go away. I mean, why would I want the physical presence of Jesus to go away? Because he says when that spirit comes and it indwells you, the spirit will enlighten you to everything that you need to know and everything you need to understand. Matter of fact, it's going to be better because when I'm not physically with you, the Holy Spirit will always be with you. And we've talked about this before. And so the disciples' response to all of this is, oh, we get it now, Jesus. <laughs> 
totally understand exactly everything you're talking about, right? Well, I'm pretty sure Jesus is kind of like, I don't think you guys quite get it. So let me just kind of finish this portion off here. So now we come to verse 31. He says, you believe at last? Question mark. Jesus answered, but a time is coming and has come when you will be scattered each to his own home. You will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I have told you these things so that you may have peace. And in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. <clears throat> Again, we can be pretty harsh with the disciples. We can be really harsh with a lot of people in the Bible, right? We, we, we just often go through the scriptures and go, I don't understand how people don't get it. How do they not understand? How do they not do and see what God has seen? Well, again, we're able to have the luxury and the blessing to look back at the scriptures and see how God worked. These are people living in real times and real emotions and real experiences. And, and God is still revealing himself to the world. Okay, so, so let's not be overly harsh at this. But he says to them, he says, look, a time is coming where well, you will be scattered. Right? When I am taken to the cross, you're all going to go your separate ways. And it's okay. It's okay that you do that because the Father is with me. I'm not alone. I'm not worried about it. But again, I'm just letting you know what's going to happen. And the reason why I'm telling you is so that you will have peace. That when this trouble comes, and it will, I want you to take heart and remember that I have overcome the world. So, so as I say, Christ is wrapping up his teaching here for his disciples. He's preparing them for the final portion of this. This is his last teaching that he's giving to his disciples before he makes his journey to the cross. And again, we've talked persecution two weeks ago, and he's reminding them yet again, life is going to be hard and you're going to be in trouble with this. Because as believers, we're not exempted from the difficulties and hardships of this world. Right? That's never what Christ promised to us. But he promised that he overcomes the world, that he overcame this world. That we can have peace in this world of difficulty. And that's what he's trying to, to, to pray dearly that his disciples understand. And, and this promise again happens in the midst of the fear and the confusion of our lives all the time. And so when he says, I want you to be at peace, it's interesting because the word peace in this case is the term that he uses for a peace treaty that there's peace in, in, in a time of war that happens. And, and the reason why he does that, because when Christ says he's overcome the world, it means that he has conquered, that Christ has prevailed, that Christ has won the victory. So, so Christ in this moment is using an analogy here of war and battle and explaining to them that I've won the war and the peace that you will have is the peace that when the war is over. And so what we have to understand, what this is to his disciples is not a speech of comfort, but this is his victory speech. And he's trying to get them to see that. And so, so why are these disciples should feel at peace? 
Why should they, why should they feel okay that, that the man that they followed is going to go to the cross and die? Well, we have to remember that when he speaks in this tense, Jesus speaks in the tense that it's already been accomplished, even though he yet has physically done it. So it's already a done deal in the mind of Christ. And so what is it that Jesus conquered? We see several things that Jesus conquers at the cross. Colossians chapter 2. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of the flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. What did he conquer? He conquered our sins forever. He conquered the spiritual forces of darkness in this moment on the cross. And when he talks about this, this moment where he's in, he's in the grave and he comes back, he says, you're going to have a joy because you're going to know that I've won the war and victory is mine. But he doesn't stop there. We see this in Revelation chapter 20. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth of Gog and Magog and to gather them for battle. And in number they are like the sand on the seashore, and they marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. And the, and, and, but fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophets had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. What did Christ overcome? He conquers Satan himself. The evil one, the one who leads us astray. Christ has defeated him and he will face his ultimate destiny in the difficulties and perils of hell. You know, last week Dave talked about this perfect plan and he said he was committed to it. And he talked about all of the other fake notions and other plans that the world puts forward. You know, that, that we just give everybody what they want, that you take this world by power. You take the shortcut to fame. You live for yourself. Temporary evil is okay if good results or, or condemnation of the opposing side. There's all of these other plans. And when Christ went to the cross, he said, my plan was better than any one of those plans. And then 1 Corinthians 15. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with the immortal, and then with the saying that was written will come true, that death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He conquered death. He conquered the fact that we will temporarily live in this body and one day will be resurrected with the Heavenly Father. There is nothing that has any power or hold over us. And that is what Christ is trying to get to his disciples. He said, this is what I have won. And so what does he say? He says, rejoice. He says, take heart. He says, take heart heart in what is about to happen. And when he says take heart, that phrase means 
Be courageous. Have courage when you are about to face the difficulties and trials and the persecutions that lie ahead of you. You know, if this is a victory speech, if this is a connotation that this is a battle and a war that is won, then his disciples are his soldiers, are they not? We are his soldiers. And he's telling us, take heart in these moments. Now, things happen in life, and I can say to you, hey, be strong, be courageous. And I can reiterate what the scriptures say. But, but when I say it, it doesn't have the same backing because I don't have the authority to say this to you. I can say it to you because I want you to feel good, but I don't have the authority the way that Christ does. You know, when he says take heart, it's an imperative. It is a command. This is something that you are supposed to do. It's not like, hey, you know, feel good and do it. No, he's looking at his soldiers in the eyes and he's saying, this is my command from you. Then Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And then we see this in Colossians, that for in all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. When Christ says to you, take heart and have courage, and he says, this is a command, this is the general of the entire army speaking to his soldiers and saying, you listen up and you will do this. That is the way we need to hear this scripture. That is the way that we need to embrace this world when it stands against us. We don't cower, we don't back down. We remember what Christ has said and we stand boldly on that battlefield for him. And we do it because he has conquered the grave. The victory has already been won. I find this to be an extremely fitting last teaching to his disciples. He could have told them anything at this moment. But I think what he tells them is crucially important. That he says, when I am gone and you think the war is lost, it hasn't been so be strong and be courageous because what we have is Christ's victory lap when he goes to the cross. Let's pray. You have won. You have won, Father. You have won. You have won. Lord, you cried, it is finished on the cross. Lord, the nailing of your body and the shedding of your blood was the nailing of our sins, was the nailing of our death, was the nailing of our pain. And Lord, we so often can get into this world where all we see is the struggle, where, where all we see is the hurt, is the pain, is the persecution. And all we feel at times, God, is that we are lost and this war seems to be an endless war that we're fighting and, and nothing seems to be going our way. But praise to you, God. Praise to you who said 
the battle has been won. And so our grief and our sorrow should be turned to joy because we know in the end, Lord, that you shall return. We shall be risen with you forever. Thank you that you have defeated the grave. You have put Satan into his place and you have called us into your home forever. Amen.